right. Today on the Harvest Podcast, we have Tom Hayes from Great Hill Capital. Uh, Tom, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Justin. So, uh, you know, Tom has been a contributor here recently on Harvest. Uh, we've followed him on Twitter uh, for a while now. Uh, you can find him at uh, hedgefundtips.com as well as, is it Hedge Fund Tips uh, Twitter handle as well, Tom? That's right, at Hedge Fund Tips. And we also have a podcast, uh, which is number two in the hedge fund category by Feedspot. It's called Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. So what we try to do on the blog and in the podcast video cast is just put out our weekly outlook on the market. Uh, sometimes we put out some of our uh, high, high conviction uh, positions uh, and uh, generally answer questions from regular viewers. So it's uh, a lot of fun. We like to do that on a weekly basis. Awesome. So, um, you know, let's dive right into it. Give us a little background on Great Hill Capital. I know it's a long, short hedge fund, uh, but would love to hear, you know, a little bit of the history for both yourself as well as Great Hill Capital. Yeah, so um, the first hedge fund I worked at was Bedford Oak Advisors. Uh, the principal was very good friends with Warren Buffett. His four seed investors were uh, Mario Gabelli, Michael Bloomberg, Sam Zell, and Phil Frost of Teva. So it was an all-star cast, and I learned quite a bit uh, working there. And then I went on to, uh, after four years, I went on to work with a group called Cornwall Capital. You probably recognize them from the big short. Uh, they were one of the few firms that got that right during the great financial crisis. And then uh, about seven years ago, I went out on my own. Uh, to start Great Hill Capital, which is a long, short equity firm uh, for accredited investors and qualified institutions. Great. And I know that you've got, um, you know, I was able to check out some of the fund uh, overview uh, literature. And, and I know one of the, the key things that uh, is the anchor of the fund's thesis is buying on weakness and selling on strength. Uh, I think that we're in some really interesting times right now. Uh, and, and I, you know, really appreciate some of the insights and the perspective that you have. Uh, so would love to hear, you know, where are you seeing some of these comparables in the past? Uh, you know, how we can kind of approach what we're seeing in the current climate in the market. Uh, would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a couple of things. I, I would say uh, one of my first big ideas was, uh, I was a lot younger, was in 2009 coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, the uh, FASB played a role in actually creating the financial crisis in 2007. They put out FAS 157, which means if, if you held bonds that were, were paying, uh, you still had to mark them to market. And in 2007, 2008, the markets became very illiquid. So a lot of banks and financial institutions were, were taking huge markdowns, which affected earnings their ability to raise capital, their, their capital ratios, et cetera, uh, even though the assets were still paying. Um, in uh, early 2009, they were gonna change that. And we saw an opportunity in uh, Phoenix Companies, which was a life insurer at the time. And uh, basically what we saw was that once they changed this, all the marks that they had taken in Q4, uh, which they took like 700 million by the way, but uh, only a, a small amount of that was attributable to the other than temporarily uh, impaired marks. But we estimated that they were gonna have, uh, they were gonna go from like negative 700 million to positive 40 million. The stock was trading at 49 cents. Sure enough, that change was made. The stock was up, uh, went from 49 cents to 205. We got out of it up 300% in a couple of months. And we saw a similar situation uh, during COVID 
we put out an article actually on the blog at hedgefundtips.com on March 19th. Uh, the Dow Jones was down 32.31%. Uh, uh, that compares to in 1917, the maximum drawdown uh, with the Spanish flu was 33.47. We said that we felt this was overdone because we would likely recover more quickly. We had uh, better tools with the Fed, with fiscal policy, with monetary policy, et cetera, and that we were leading in. MarketWatch picked up the article and it went kind of viral. The next day, sometimes better to be lucky than, than to be good. Right. The next day, the market bottomed uh, and we were off to the races. But not all stocks were off to the races because banks in particular Economists were so pessimistic, they were anticipating 20% unemployment, negative 8% GDP, uh, et cetera. And uh, just at this time, there was an accounting standard requiring them to take uh, called CECL, current expected credit losses. So banks had to anticipate the worst case scenario of those type of unemployment numbers uh, going forward and take the marks up front. Uh, which, which impacted their, their uh, financials. And uh, sure enough, uh, we came out with a strong thesis on Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo was trading at a 40% discount to book value uh, in the midst of the crisis. This was you know, over the summer and into the fall of 2020. That only happened two other times in history. One was during the great financial crisis. And what we said in our note was it recovered within months, not years. We believed that was gonna be the case again this time. And then during the SNL crisis in uh, the early 90s, it also traded at a 40% discount to book. Usually in a normalized environment, they'll trade at one to you know, 1.5 times book, sometimes two times book if, if the market gets euphoric. Uh, and it had traded in those ranges as recently as 2016. So we were pounding the table on that. And while we were pounding the table on that, there were people saying, no, no, we don't need banks anymore. Decentralized finance is gonna happen overnight. Why are you paying for pens on chains and, and bank branches when no one uses them anymore? And we just you know, ignored the noise uh, and, and got uh, aggressively invested in banks in summer and fall. Uh, at, and the basis, by the way, we started buying Wells Fargo at 28 and change. It went against us down to 22. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in percentage terms, that's a big move against you, especially when it's a sizable position. We bought down into that weakness. Our basis was 2501, uh, and we started peeling off uh, in the high 80s uh, a material amount. And um, you know, we're, we're recently, you know, lightening up materially on the banks. So what what's now? I mean, the other the other uh, industry that was left for dead was the energy sector during the Great Financial Crisis. And if you just look at history again, everyone was saying windmills and solar and all of this stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, everyone wants to go green. The question is, how quickly can it be done in, on a realistic basis? We got very aggressive. The short interest had hit a 20-year high uh, in, in, on the energy sector. XLE uh, was, is the ETF, was uh, trading at $30.52 when we put our note out in fall of 2020. XOM was at around 38, ExxonMobil. Uh, and those have absolutely been home runs. The, the key during periods of dislocation, what we find is you got to go up the food chain because a lot of bad things are happening. I mean, the market's not wrong. The, you know, the market is discounting you know, some really bad news that's happening in the present. It might be uh, 
overshooting due to forced liquidations, due to different structural issues in the market. And that's where that's the opportunity to take advantage. Uh, but when, when you're in those periods, you don't want to be buying low quality businesses or uh, the wrong part of the capital structure. Uh, if you're in smaller businesses, you want to be buying the highest quality. So we were buying a basket of XLE, which was the integrated and we were buying ExxonMobil, which, you know, in, in our view was, was the way to go. If, if energy was ever going to recover, they were going to certainly participate. And there were, you know, a slew of bankruptcies for the smaller EMP names uh, and some of the servicers. So it wasn't just, you know, you could buy energy. It was buy the highest quality when it's dramatically on sale. And that's kind of been our theme over the years, and it's worked pretty well. Right. I think that's a great segue into, you know, what we're seeing right now, current market sentiment. What's your take on that? Are we, you know, have we hit a bottom? Are we just getting started? Where are we going? Yeah. I, I think it's nuanced, Justin. Uh, I, I do think the bottom is in. I, I think we actually got the cathartic flush on January 24th. Uh, when you saw indicators really go. We've had the recent retest with the Russia-Ukraine situation, which is serious, uh, and it could go in a lot of different directions. You know, the, the worst case scenario is a very, very low probability. Uh, and by the way, if you bet on that, if you bet on the end of the world uh, and it comes, there's no one to pay off your bet. So, you know, it's, it's generally not profitable to, to go in that direction. Um, so we think, you know, with sentiment, you look at fear and greed was at, I think, 18 today. You look at the AAII retail sentiment is at, you know, many year lows. It's, it's uh, I think it was at 19% a couple of weeks ago, 19% bullish, which is usually an area that you start to see some bottoming. And, and you see some lows uh, and, and you look at across the board at, at general sentiment, it, it's flush. So do you just buy anything willy nilly? No, I, I think, again, you want to lean into uh, high quality that's on sale. And two of the groups that we've spent a lot of time on uh, in recent weeks that, that we're leaning into aggressively. Uh, first is uh, biotech and second is China tech. We like uh, Alibaba on the China tech side and we like uh, biotech, at the broad sector, and I can go into some details on either of those, uh, whichever one you want to start with. Yeah, you know, I think China Tech, I think would be really interested, uh, <laughs> interesting to hear, um, just because uh, some of the, uh, I think, political commentary that uh, falls within that realm um, I guess it could be argued that it's a little bit of a contrarian viewpoint, but would love to hear, <laughs> you, you know, the direction and, and your thesis behind it. Uh, it yeah, to, you know, I won't to, call it controversial by any means, but I think yeah. it's very interested. It's, you're not hearing many people come out and say, uh, you know, China tech is, is, a, uh, is the play. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, it feels almost as dirty as banks and energy felt in, in 2000 during the middle of pandemic. I mean, you couldn't give them away. Uh, now everyone's tripping over themselves to buy them. And I think you're going to see a similar situation with China Tech. Uh, there's no question it's controversial and it's contrarian. It's the most hated group in the world. If, if you could say to you know, half of managers right now, what's the last thing you'd want to own? I think China would be uh, first on the list. However, uh, when you put the sentiment, the noise and the perception aside and you actually just look at the numbers, uh, they're pretty damn attractive. And, you know, I, I have a client that I was going to through uh, over it with the position. And I said, look, this reminds me of Microsoft in 2013. What most, you know, 
people give Satya Nadella a tremendous amount of credit and he deserves it yeah. uh, for, for doing the subscription-based model, et cetera. But if you actually look at the economic performance of the business from 2006 to 2013, when uh, Steve Ballmer was at the helm, uh, revenues per share grew by 112%, cash flow per share grew by 193%, and earnings per share grew by 120%. Guess what happened to the stock over those, that seven-year period? I, I would assume possibly stagnant, or did it actually come yeah. up? Yeah, it, it, was actually, it actually did nothing. So the underlying business more than doubled, depending which uh, metric you looked at, uh, and the, business, uh, the stock did nothing. Uh, now, if you'd hung on for the next nine years uh, after that period of consolidation, uh, the stock was up 1,500%. Oh, and by the way, uh, Satya's performance, uh, if you look at revenues, cash flow, and earnings, was not much better over the next seven-year period as it was over the previous seven-year period. Wow. And that's exactly what's happening with Alibaba right now. Now, what, what is the catalyst? Yes, you have all the political noise, obviously. Uh, it, it, there's a risk because of the arbitrary nature of some of the things that the Chinese government did last summer with the online game, with the uh, education sector basically shut it down more or less, some of the online gaming crackdowns. But what we know about China is this happens every three to five years. They did the online gaming in 2008, uh, and they have a tendency the year before the China National Congress, when they have the political transition, which is coming up this November, to show a heavy hand the year before. And then the 12 months leading in, they start to ease policy once they realize that they overshot. They don't want to go into the transition meeting uh, with a weak economy and mass unemployment. Uh, so they, they get the stimulus going. And we've seen that since uh, October, November, they started to aggressively stimulate, loosen policy, increase lending, et cetera. But as for Alibaba, comparing it to Microsoft, well, in the last seven years from, from 2014, when they IPO to 2021, uh, revenues per share increased by 900%, or actually 894%, cash flow per share up 550%, and earnings per share up 600%. Oh, and by the way, you can purchase the stock today for the same price it was in 2014. So will the next seven years be a 1,500% move like Microsoft? I don't know the answer to that question, but we do think that at these levels, uh, it's at least a multi-bagger. Uh, we think the intrinsic value over the next three years is uh, in the neighborhood of $300. And if things loosen up and, and normalize, uh, uh, it could be worth a bunch more uh, five years out. So uh, we're willing to suffer uh, the long-term, the short-term volatility for the long-term reward, just as we were when Wells Fargo moved against us in the short term uh, and some others. Because ultimately, if you know what you own and you know the underlying uh, fundamentals and the business is high quality and has a moat, uh, the opportunity for upside, if you can weather the short-term noise, uh, can be material. Yeah, sounds like a compelling play. Very interesting. I love that comparison on the Microsoft to uh, where we're seeing Alibaba today. Um, so that's China Tech. Uh, any other plays that uh, you're paying attention to? Yeah, the, the one that we've been aggressively leaning into in uh, the last couple of weeks has been biotech. And, and we're not playing any discrete names. We're kind of playing the sector, uh, the basket. If you look over the last, since November, the earnings power of the top 30 weights in the biotech sector uh, cumulatively declined by about 40 basis points, so uh, less than a half of a, a percent. So basically, the, the fundamentals of the underlying business were unchanged or modestly impaired. 
the uh, sector was down over 37%. So we like those divergences. Why did it collapse so precipitously? Uh, part of it, or a good part of it, was on interest rate fears, uh, drug pricing fears with the Build Back Better program, which is now Build Back Burner program because it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, or at least it's not going to happen in its original form. It may be piecemeal. And we're getting very close to the election. So uh, unlikely that you're going to see any material changes there. Now, if you look quantitatively at the sector, uh, the average multiple since 1986, uh, just to get back to the average multiple price to book multiple, the sector would have to appreciate 24%. To get to the average price to operating cash flow multiple, the sector would have to appreciate by 155%. Uh, And to get to the average forward PE multiple, it would have to appreciate 112%. So we think the risk reward, a lot of the downside, if not more than enough downside is priced in. And the other thing to keep in mind when you look at these, Justin, is that just as they overshoot on emotion, sentiment, and structural issues on the downside, they also uh, revert uh, and overshoot in euphoria on the upside. They never revert back to their average. They always go well above the average before reverting back to the mean. Uh, and we think that's, that's the setup for the next 12 to 24 months by owning a, a large swath of the biotech. And, and by the way, there are over 100 companies uh, now trading at a discount to the cash on their balance sheet. Uh, no credit for, for intellectual property, <laughs> no credit for patents, no credit for buildings. I mean, it's just one of these situations uh, structurally where there's opportunity, no one wants to touch it. We like sectors that are left for dead. We buy the highest quality or a basket of the highest quality. And we think that's what biotech represents at this juncture. So, uh, you know, with the general market uh, in turmoil, it's created opportunity both in China tech and in biotech, which we think uh, have unique properties looking 12 to 24 months out. Uh, great, uh, great uh, synopsis on that front, um, Tom. And uh, I think that uh, this is a great intro for the audience. And you know, w- would love to have you back on any uh, any kind of market rack recaps from here. Um, anything that you want to you want to say that you didn't get to say uh, before we wrap it up. Yeah, I, th- I think the only thing that I would be looking at right now uh, with the Russia Ukraine situation. Uh, a friend called me up just before the podcast and said, what do, what do you think here? And I said, I think you're going to look at look about you know 30 to 60 days out. You're going to look out and we're knocking on the door to new highs in the S&P 500. He said, are you kidding me with all this stuff happening? I said, because of all this stuff happening. People are so positioned short that the time to buy insurance is before your house is on fire. If you look at the data over the last week and a half, two weeks, the, you've seen the put call ratio spike up. You've seen the VIX, the price of at the money protection and, and the skew out of the money protection um, at, at levels that um, are usually near inflection. So, um, you know, you, even if you look at the short interest on the S&P uh, is, is elevated and, and uh, that's usually the time that you want to take the other side of the, uh, of the trade when the boat is all crowded on one side. And we think that uh, we can't predict what's going to be the catalyst to calm things down. But uh, usually when things become this acute, we're close to it and, uh, and we're getting positioned accordingly. Right on. Tom Hayes from Great Hill Capital. You can find him also uh, on Twitter, Hedge Fund Tips, as well as hedgefundtips.com. Uh, Tom, really looking forward to having you back on the podcast shortly here and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Justin. Cheers. Bye. Thank you.